During Jesus' ministry, he performed many miracles that benefited a great number of people. But when the people's focus began to only be on what he could do for them from a fleshly perspective, he quickly redirected them to their greatest spiritual need. Welcome to A Walk in the Word, where we bring you the Sunday sermons from Providence Baptist Church Gaston's worship services. In this week's sermon, Pastor John Friedrich summarizes what Jesus was trying to get them to understand. Let's join in as Pastor Friedrich preaches a message entitled, Will You Also Go Away? from John chapter 6. All right, well, it's good to be in the Lord's house with you guys this morning as we open up his word and see what he has to say. So uh, if you would follow along with me, we're in the book of John chapter 6. We're going to be reading verses 60 through 71. 60 through 71. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Doth this offend you? What? And if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? It is the Spirit that quickeneth the flesh, profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are, the sp they are spirit, they are life. But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not, and who should betray him? And he said, Therefore said I unto you, that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him by my Father. From that time many of his disciples went back, and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Have I not chosen you twelve, and one of you is the devil? He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he, he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before your throne this morning, we are eternally grateful for the opportunity that we have to once again gather in your house, Lord. It is always a blessing, always... Uh, truly a joy to come together to lift your name in praise and worship to to hear your word taught to hear your word preached Lord to fellowship together and, and believe as believers Lord it is it is a blessing and we we praise you for that Lord it is truly an honor uh, to gather in your name and Lord now as we prepare our hearts for the word that you have for us today Lord let's just help us to have open hearts and open minds help us to be under distracted by anything so that we might fully focus on you uh, as these words are spoken. And Lord, I know I'm not worthy to be the one to present your word to these folks that are gathered here today, but I just ask that you use me as you see fit. Just take away any distraction, pride, selfishness, whatever, in any way, shape, or form could interfere with the message. Lord, just remove it. Take it away. Empty me. Make me a hollow vessel and then fill me with your spirit that I might only speak the words that you've given me. And Lord, help us as a church to continue to move forward, to continue to grow, to, to reach out to the community around us and the needs that exist, uh, whether those needs be physical or spiritual. Lord, help us to continue to be focused on the things that you would have us to do and never be inwardly focused where we become self-centered or self-serving. And Lord, as individuals, help us very similarly uh, be outwardly focused, looking constantly for opportunities to share the gospel 
uh, with anybody we come in contact with, uh, to always extend a hand and need to be your hands and feet in the world around us, uh, Lord, and help us to always con- consider you and everything that we say and do that you might be glorified. And Lord, help us to avoid evil at those times that we do succumb to it. Lord, we do sin against you. Help, Please forgive us of our sins. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, our text this morning comes after a, a series of pretty interesting events uh, and exchanges within the sixth chapter of John. The chapter starts off with one of the most commonly known and familiar of Jesus' miracles, and that is the feeding of the masses. Everybody has heard this. I've seen it in secular settings. I've even heard people reference it. And so it's a very well, well well-known miracle of his where literally thousands of people were fed with five barley loaves and two small fishes. Now we remember that the people had eaten their fill, and even after that, uh, there remained 12 baskets full. Jesus said, collect up what it remains. And 12 baskets full of leftovers, basically, were gathered up. That's a lesson for us in that God expects us to not be wasteful with that which he blesses us. Instead of saying, well, just leave it laying around, what they didn't eat, God says, collect it up. So there's a whole nother story, a whole nother sermon, a whole nother lesson in that. But just take away from that that God expects us to be good stewards of what he blesses us with and to not be wasteful. All right? And that includes leftovers after meals, guys. So don't ever scoff at leftovers. All right? All right, after feeding the masses and realizing that people were going to take him by force and make him king, remember they were like, well, let's make this guy our king. Let's, he, he, he can do all these things. Let's make him our king. Jesus retreated. Uh, by himself up on a mountain to get away from everybody and he sent his apostles across the water to across the sea to Capernaum. So Jesus goes up on a mountain, sends his apostles in a boat across the sea to Capernaum. He would rejoin them later that night by literally walking across the sea himself. And upon crossing the sea the following day, the masses who were with him on land that had spent the night making their way around to Capernaum, find Jesus already there. They find him there and they find him teaching in the synagogue there. Now that was a bit of a shock. Because remember, he had sent the apostles in across the sea and that was the only boat available. And they were wondering, how in the world did he get over there before we did? When he was in the mount, up in the mountain, when we left and started heading this way, and we didn't see him on the path, apparently. He could have not have been there had he traveled by land around the sea, and there was no boats for him to travel in. So this would effectively have been yet another miracle that he had accomplished in sight of all of these people. So there's the stage that's set here. He's, he has performed multiple miracles in front of these individuals. These individuals had seen him do things that were not humanly possible. They could only be done through the power of God. And this is important to note because keep this in the back of your mind as we consider the behavior and the questions that we see posed to Jesus. And we need to do that in the, against the backdrop of what the people had already witnessed. Alright, so keep that in the back of your minds as we go forward and kind of look at what is going on here and what's transpiring between the people and Jesus. 
Now, Jesus' response to asking them, they ask him how he got to the other side of the sea. It's an interesting response. Instead of him saying, well, I walked across the water, or you probably wouldn't believe you if I told you, Jesus calls them out. He calls them out on their fleshly motivations for seeking him out in the first place and points them towards thinking of the spiritual versus the physical. He directed them to work for the eternal versus the temporary. And this occurs right before our verses that we looked at this morning. If you read just before this, all of this is playing out. And, gives, and I'm giving you kind of the background behind this. They want the answers on the physical, so he points them to the spiritual. Now at this point, there's a moment of reflection at their, on their part. And they seemingly kind of shift gears and ask Jesus a legitimate question. Problem is, the question is presented from a legalistic standpoint. And Jesus' reference to laboring, it would seem, put them once again in the mindset of finding favor with God through their works. But Jesus always has a way of kind of shifting things, putting things in perspective, putting things in the right context, pointing them in the right direction. And I love the response he gives them. Jesus tells them that effectively, that the will of God, what God ultimately wants from them, is for them to believe on him. That ultimately, God wants them to believe in Jesus Christ. Of all the things that they could have been told to do, of all the things that they could have been told were important, Jesus says, you know what's really, what really matters? Not the material. God wants you to believe. He points them at what is really important, what really matters. What an incredibly powerful statement he makes. And it echoes throughout all eternity because the very same thing is true for us today. Worldly, unscriptural belief systems tell you to do good. Accumulate merit points through your actions that demonstrate your righteousness and piousness. And through this you'll find favor with God. That sounds ridiculous to those of us who know that we find favor with God only through Jesus Christ and that we can find no favor in and of ourselves. But this is exactly what so many pulpits are pushing today. Jesus says there is only one thing, one act, one way to find reconciliation with the Father, and that is through belief in His Son. That is the statement of truth that resounds through all the ages. But then, at the moment of truth, when they have had laid before them the one way to eternal life, by the very author of eternal salvation, mind you, who's standing right there, how do they, how do they respond to this? If you'll read ahead of this, they ask him, well, perform some miracle to convince us that this is all true and that you are who you say you are. Now wait a minute. Let's let's step back for a second here. These are the same individuals that saw him feed thousands of people with a couple of barley or five barley loaves and a couple of fish. 
These are the same individuals that know that there is no humanly way possible he could have made it to Capernaum before they did. Outside of the power of God. Perform some miracle. Prove us. Prove to us who you are. Prove to us what you're saying is true. You say, we heard how you fed our ancestors in the wilderness with bread from heaven. How about something like that? Now I remind you, these are the very same people that had already been fed. Just moments before, they realized that Jesus had made his way across the Sea of Tiberias during the night without the aid of a boat. Now they want some more proof so that they could put their faith in that. A hardened heart. A heart that is focused on self is going to be a pretty hard nut to crack. Even for the Savior himself. How about some heavenly bread for us too, they asked. And it was at this point that Jesus tries to get them to understand that he was in fact the bread of life. See, once again we see this shift. We see a shift from him taking them from the the material, the, the fleshly thinking, and shifting them over to, let's consider the spiritual in all of this. He's the bread of life, not the manna. Not the bread that his, their ancestors were given from heaven. I really wish we had more time to kind of peel back the layers on verses 35 through 40, but two things I do want to point out that are tucked neatly within this part of Jesus' response. God's pursuit of man and the eternal security of the believer. Note his verse, his words in verse 37. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. This is a reference to all of those who come to the Savior and take hold of the truth. This gives deeper clarification to the earlier statement that Jesus made regarding the work, uh, the one work of God that he desired is to believe. To believe in the Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ. This takes the credit for even that obedience from mankind and places it squarely at the feet of God. And what's more, Jesus points out that those who do place their faith in Him are eternally secure because Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out, and then later, all that He hath given me I should lose nothing. These are two very, very critical and pivotal truths that are presented regarding the belief in Jesus Christ. But their focus, as we see in their murmuring, was still on the reference to Jesus being the bread of life. And so he returns to a deeper discussion of that topic and sets the stage for our verses this morning. See, the comment that Jesus makes that he being the bread of life was the statement that they had difficulty with. This is a statement that they said, this is a hard saying. So let's take a look at what God is showing us through these passages in Jesus' reaction and his response to them saying that in reference to all that he had said and that we had talked about just now leading up to our verses and the context of what is transpiring here. And the first thing that we should take note of is for us to see our need for Him. We've got to see our need for Him. 
Jesus was making statements to the group that were intended to get them to understand their spiritual needs. He wanted to try to get their minds off the physical and onto the spiritual. Get your minds off your belly and start thinking about your spiritual life. What he desperately wanted them to see was their greatest need. Their greatest need was not food. Their greatest need was not shelter. It was a need for the Savior. Their need for Him. The wording that Jesus used was when He was explaining this was a part of what the people struggled with understanding. But He presented it that way so that they would understand that it wasn't just following Him around, waiting for Him to provide meals and such. It wasn't just sitting under His teaching and listening to His words. They literally needed Him to be a part of them. He needed to be their everything. They needed to be joined inseparably to Him in such a way that they could never be separated again. They needed to commit to Him in a way that some would use a common saying that some of you who follow college football might be familiar with. They needed to be all in. You see, we find ourselves in that very same boat. We have this very same need for Jesus. But before we can do that, we've got to find ourselves in a place of spiritual debt before God. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is that we have to understand our place before God because of our sins. We have to understand that our sins put us at odds with God. At enmity, as the Bible puts it. In fact, we are enemies of God because of our sin. We need to learn that that sin has a price. I've mentioned before how the seriousness of our sins, uh, the magnitude of the offense, offense is proportional to the person against who the offense was committed. So think about this. How great then is our sin debt against an infinitely holy and righteous God? Our commission of evil against an infinitely holy God. That puts a pretty steep price on things, doesn't it? That puts the magnitude of the offense on a level that you and I really can't comprehend. And thus explains why Jesus tells us the wages of sin or death in His Word. There's no avenue, there's no way in our own capability, in our own doing, that we could possibly begin to repay that debt, let alone reconcile it all together. That can only be accomplished through faith in Jesus and remember, Jesus made a point in telling them that this was the one thing above all else that God wanted them to do. Place their faith in Jesus Christ. So often we may hear people say, well, I would believe if I could be sure. 
If I could just be sure about it, then I would believe it. But that's kind of getting things backwards, isn't it? Because the Lord requires that we believe first, and then we will be sure. Because it is our faith that gives us understanding. And we as Christians must walk in faith. It tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.7, For we walk by faith, not by sight. If you were sure based on reasons outside of faith, then guess what? It wouldn't be faith. Even the followers of Jesus at the time could not step off into faith. Remember how after Jesus told them to believe they were wanting some sort of a sign? They struggled with trying to hold on, to grab a hold of this faith. Well, I could have faith if you give me a sign. Well, then that really isn't faith now, is it? But this is nothing new. Just a few chapters back in the book of John, Jesus chastised a nobleman, and by inference, the whole of the people for this very thing. John 4.48 says, Then said Jesus unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. Meaning, unless you try to base it on something factual and something that you can visually see, you're not going to believe. It's not faith. So then, without belief in Jesus, people take to formulating kind of their, their own way of doing things. There are so many people in this world that feel like they're going to rewrite the book on how we can reach God and enter into heaven. They hear the words of the Bible explaining to them the desperate situation they find themselves in, the absolute imbalance of moral righteousness that the Bible teaches. And somehow, in their minds, they formulate this idea of, well, I will just do plenty of good deeds, I will do lots of good stuff, and somehow... I will overcome this mountain of debt that I owe. This is their way of saying, I will ascend the mountain of God, effectively. And we've heard that before, haven't we? The words of Satan. And I'll find favor. I'll present all my good deeds to God, and surely He will find some good stuff there to, to help give me credit for But they're forgetting a fundamental element when it comes to finding favor with God. And we see that in Hebrews 11.6. We see where it says, But without faith, what? It is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and he that is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Did you catch that first part there, folks? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without the faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you will find no favor in, with God. And that brings us to the next thing that we take away from this passage, that we need to seek Him. We need to seek Jesus, not His blessings. Now this might kind of jump out at you, and some people say, well, wait a minute. Jesus wants us to enjoy His blessings that He sends us. Yes, absolutely. But is that what you're seeking from Him? Are you seeking those things that He can offer you, that He can give you? Or are you seeking Him? 
I know sometime back I talked about the importance of wanting the, the person of Jesus Christ versus the benefits of having the relationship with Him. But this concept is one that seems to get overrun like right away in our today's society, in the churches today. Our, church, our culture today has become so self-focused, and I'm not saying this is anything new by any means, but it seems to be intensifying. Even within churches. You look in the churches today, and there's a significant movement away from the joys of simply Christ. What we see for the focus being now are all the things that are fun, pleasant, satisfying that we can do, and we just kind of attach the name of Jesus Christ to it to try to somehow legitimize it within the church. But if we don't understand something here, we are missing out on the single greatest benefit outside of salvation to having a relationship with Jesus Christ. All throughout Scripture, we see time and time again how it talks about the faithfulness of our Lord in our lives. We see a friend, as we even touched on it this morning in our songs that we sang, a friend that is closer than a brother. We see a supporter who is always there in our time of need. We see a source of strength and comfort in the darker times of our life. We see an ally in our battle against flesh and the sin. In Christ we have the ability for us to have the kind of relationship that is not only fulfilling to the uttermost, but one that will last forever. We're talking about a relationship that is without end. He is the one person in our lives where we can rest assured we will never be separated from once we are joined to Him. He is there in life, and He is there after death. He is there in death. What an incredible thought when you finally lay hold of that truth. He is there in your life. He is there as you transition and He is there after you make the transition through death. I guarantee you there is not a person in this world today that you can have a relationship with that will not disappoint you at some point in time. We are sinful, flawed human beings. We make mistakes and that includes in our relationships. And we will inevitably disappoint the person on the other end. And what's more is that unless we and those we have a close relationship die simultaneously or are raptured out together, at some point there's going to be a period of separation as well. But not so with Jesus. He's always there. And it doesn't matter how your life progresses, how the transition occurs. He's here for us now and He will be for there with us to greet us when we enter the gates into heaven. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people that are content with a superficial what's-in-it-for-me approach. But Jesus, fortunately, is persistent. 
Jesus is always approaching us saying, I want to give you myself. Now this may come in the form of blessings that lead us to repentance in the light of God's goodness. Sometimes instead it comes with difficulty or trials. He's always trying to offer himself through different things. But through it all, he just wants to give us himself. And as we grow and as we move and travel down the road of discipleship, isn't it an awesome realization that Jesus continues to try to push us out of the material into the spiritual so that we can become more and more desiring of just Him? Jesus offered the crowd Himself as the bread of life. They wanted instead something material. But he offered himself. John Piper, Piper, John Piper made the challenge in one of his books regarding this concept by asking this question. If you could have everything, all the good things that heaven has to offer, but Jesus wasn't going to be there, would you still be satisfied with it? Meaning if you were able to enjoy the benefits of heaven, but not Jesus himself, would you still want to go? It's a good self-examination on what's important to you and why you pursue Jesus. The last thing that we draw from this is that we need to submit to his lordship. We need to submit to his lordship. Notice that those who left didn't want to overcome that difficult teaching. They didn't want to try to understand or grasp somehow what Jesus was trying to tell them. Instead, they threw their hands up. This is hard to understand. I'm just, I'm out of here. I don't like what I hear. I don't like how uncomfortable this statement makes me feel. He's the bread of life. How many today will leave the church or perhaps go seek out another because they are confronted with some truth that the Bible presents that they have, a trouble, have trouble with, that they either wrestle with understanding or they perhaps don't like the way it makes them feel. Not necessarily because it's difficult to understand, but it, that it's offensive to them. In other words, they got their toes stepped on. It confronts sin in their life points out an area that they are comfortable with that God says needs to be addressed. It happens all the time. And what is sad is there are many pastors who will avoid preaching and teaching on certain subjects for fear of uh, offending those who don't want to hear about certain sin. Sins that have become popular, sins that have become socially acceptable today. Whereas we see Jesus ask, doth this offend you? A question that should strike straight to the heart. Does this offend you what I'm telling you? And then drive even further into that same doctrine. Far too many men stand behind the pulpits of the world today and ask that question with timidness in order to make note of areas of God's Word to de-emphasize 
certain areas for fear of stepping on toes, for fear of offending individuals, for fear of getting the same reaction that Jesus saw that day. For them it's become about numbers. How much emphasis do we see in Scripture about church size? How much significance do we see in the New Testament put on the size of churches? What is this common theme all throughout Scripture? In Paul's letters to the churches, in the book of Revelation, in the letters to those churches, what is the common theme? Are you adhering to what God has set you up to do? Are you being what God has set you up to be as a church? Not are you constantly adding hundreds and hundreds of people a month. God wants obedience far more than anything else. God, It's clear that God wants those who are serious about following Him, those that are devoted to Him and willing to do whatever it takes, whatever that requires. You remember the story of Gideon? I know I've covered this before. But the story of Gideon is a classic example of being well, God wanting those that are dedicated, committed. Gideon called his army together and began with an impressive number of 32,000 men. His army was pretty good size to start with. God looked at the army and while the number was significant for the day, he knew that there were too many that were half-hearted in there that were amongst the gathering. So he had Gideon send away those that God felt were not genuinely ready to fight. Those that perhaps showed without resolve that they needed to be used of God. And that brought them down from 32,000 down to 10,000. But God still wasn't happy with the commitment, the eagerness, the determination of those present to go forward in obedience to their calling. So he had Gideon bring them down by a stream and tested them to show who was truly ready for what was to come. And ultimately, Gideon was left with an army of only 300 men. So we go from 32,000 down to 300. But those 300, by golly, they were committed. They were willing to do whatever it was that God had set them off to do. Significantly smaller, but much, much more committed. God wanted to make sure that those who were willing to step out in His name were ready and willing to face whatever came just like He desires from us today. When God calls us, He expects commitment. He expects obedience. Luke 6.46 tells us, And why call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? That is a pointed uh, response from Jesus. Why are you calling me Lord and you won't obey me? And then let's not forget Matthew 16, 24. Jesus said unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Deny himself. Put self aside. Push your desires aside. And go only the path that God has called you to. When we make a decision to follow Christ, we are making a decision to follow in obedience and in sacrifice. His word clearly points to this. the Word of God tends to have a polarizing effect. I've seen it the whole time I've been in ministry. 
It creates a clear distinction between those who follow and those who do not. Those who believe and those who don't. The very Word of God demands a definitive decision from that who hears it. Typically, there are three levels of response to the Gospel. There's an outright rejection. There's what I would call the curious seekers who seem to profess belief but are really more kind of just testing the waters. These are the ones who are willing to follow along up until the first time that something is required of them, some, something of sacrifice, or God calls them to something difficult, and then they're done. They go their own way. And then there are those who embrace the truth of the gospel and begin living their life for Christ. But you need to both profess Him as Savior and acknowledge Him as Lord. I know I've touched on this before, but there are Many professing believers today that see a difference between being a Christian and being a disciple. As if one can be saved and not follow Jesus. They want the salvation. They want the get out of hell free card. But they don't want the commitment to Christ to live a life following Him. Let me explain to you. There's, there's a concept that is not found anywhere in the New Testament. A true Christian is committed to following Jesus Christ. Francis Chan, out of his book, Crazy Love, has said this. He said, some people claim that we can be Christians without necessarily becoming disciples. I wonder then, why the last thing Jesus told us was to go into the world making disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that he had commanded. You notice he didn't add, but hey, if that's too much to ask, just tell them to become Christians. Christians, you know, the people who can get into heaven without having to commit to anything. That's not what Jesus said. Discipleship and obedience go hand in hand. Discipleship and salvation are inseparably linked. Being a disciple is more than just saying the right words or being part of a group. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ is making a commitment to follow Him with all your life, for the rest of your life. Christianity is not a label, not a membership, not a religion. It is not the keeping of some moral laws. It is regeneration into a relationship with Jesus Christ. The words that Jesus spoke were intended to communicate the level of commitment that He expects that is required to be a follower of Jesus Christ. God calls each and every one of us into a relationship with Christ and we are forced to make a decision. He's calling everybody. He approaches everybody. And He's calling you too. So it comes down to this. Will we embrace the truth of our need for Him and be reborn into an eternal loving relationship with Him? Or like what Jesus faced that day, will you also go away? That choice is entirely yours. I can't make it for you. Your mom and dad can't make it for you. Your grandparents can't make it for you. It's a decision that's made deep down inside here. And it's life-changing. It's life-altering. And it's a lifelong commitment to being a disciple of Jesus Christ.
The Bible tells us if we'll confess our sins before God and believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, rising again three days later in victory over death and hell, that we can be saved. And we can enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ through that. So I put that to you today. Are you going to walk away from Jesus' bread of life? Or will you forever partake of it from this day forward? Let's stand as we go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come before your throne this morning, we are grateful that we've had this time together, Lord. We are truly grateful for your word. Lord, we just ask that you help us to help those words to take heart and root in us. Lord, just have, let them resonate within our souls that we might understand completely what it means to, to commit to you, Lord, to live a life that is committed to being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And Lord, is my heart desire that none should walk away today without having that commitment, making that decision for Jesus Christ. And Lord, help us to continually live our lives in such a way that it glorifies and honors you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in next time for another Walk in God's Word. Podcasts are available in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music and Audible, Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, CastBox, Downcast, and BeyondPod. Search for and subscribe to Providence Baptist Church space hyphen space Gaston Sermons. Until next time, may God bless you as we await his joyful return. Hi, this is John Friedrich, pastor of Providence Baptist Church. It's my prayer that our time together has helped you grow in your walk with God, or maybe he's even used it to guide you to discover the wonderful gift of salvation. If you're ever in our area, we would love for you to come worship with us. Our address is Providence Baptist Church, 977 Metafield Road, Gaston, South Carolina, 29053. If you'd like to contact us, you can do so through our website at www.providencembcgaston.com or email us at providencembcgaston at gmail.com. Again, thank you for tuning in, and we look forward to you joining us next time as we take a walk in the Word.